Hey everybody, I'm Ita Khotoretsky, and this week I would like to welcome Rachel Flickstein to um, talk to us about her journey of being a student and educator. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege to be here. Of course. So I'd like to start with a little backstory on you. What kind of a background are you from, like, and how did you grow up? Uh, sure. So I right now I live in Delaware, Baruch Hashem. I have the privilege of being here on Shlichus with my own Shluchim that I grew up with here also in Delaware. <laughs> so Rabbi Vogel actually named me when I was a baby. Uh, but I come from more of like a conservative, traditional kind of a background, um, not observant and even, you know, more because of a lack of knowledge than a lack of interest. And over the years uh, from going to Chabad and my parents also decided to send me to a Jewish day school, like a community school. Um, over the years, we'd take on more and more mitzvahs as time went on. And so over over, I guess you could say 20 years or so. Wow. <laughs> um, my whole family, Baruch Hashem, um, is Bali Tshuva. And uh, yeah, so that's my that's my background, I guess you could say. Wow, that's so special. So what was the view on religion as you were growing up? I know that you said that you were like conservative. Like how did your parents view religion? Was that like a family thing? Yeah, so actually, my my father, in particular, he went to Hebrew school when he was growing up. But in those days, it was three times a week for hours after school. Oh. And he would look out the window and see all of his friends playing football. And he was so jealous and resentful that he's Jewish and he has to be in extra school because he's Jewish. And so his bar mitzvah was his graduation ceremony. <laughs> and he said, that's it. I'm done. No more Judaism in my life. And he grew up as a teenager in that mind frame. When he was in college, he had a roommate who was a Jewish roommate. Um, they he went to University of Buffalo, and his roommate was taking a Talmud class with uh, the Shliach in Buffalo, um, Rabbi Garari, and he convinced my father to take the course with him. And so my, he did. And obviously, it opened up his mind to a whole world of Judaism that he never had as a child, like to even have an awareness of such a thing existing. And he realized that there's probably more value to Judaism than he gave it credit for as a 13-year-old boy. Um, and so he decided that when he's going to have a family, he didn't want us to have that same resentment for Judaism because we're Jewish, that we have to have extra school. He wanted us to have pride in being Jewish and excitement for our Jewish roots. So him and my mother decided that from the very beginning, they're going to send us always to a Jewish day school and so that we could have our Jewish studies and our secular studies all in one. And they were really amazing because even though the Jewish day school I went to was not uh, run by any, like it was a conservative, you know, reform based school, there was a lot of um, tradition there and there was a lot of talk about the holidays. And what was so special about my parents is that every time we would come home with something new that we learned, they were so receptive. So like Rosh Hashanah, they knew about, you know, apples dipped in honey. That's like, they got that down. <laughs> Yom Kippur, they knew to fast, you know. But then we came home and we're like, oh, it's Sukkot. And we need a sukkah and we need a lulav and we need an esrog. <laughs> and they're like, what's the lulav and an esrog? And like, where are we getting a sukkah from, you know? So then they would call Rabbi Vogel and Oria and like, how do we get a sukkah? And how do we order a lulav and esrog? And um, slowly, slowly, when we would come home, they would introduce it into the home. So we used to only do Kiddush and challah. Then we started with Shalom Aleichem and other Eishas Chaya as the years went on. 
Um, and part of that was also going to Chabad that we would go, we still had our traditional conservative synagogue that we'd go to most of the time. But as time went on, we'd go more and more frequently to Chabad. And one of the main things we went for was Simchas Torah, where we would take on the Hachlata, we called it Mitzvah Pledges. And uh, as a child, I remember speaking to the Rebbeton and asking Oriya, you know, what, what I should do. So one year I took on to light the Shabbos candles and one year I took on to... Uh, kiss my mezuzah and one year was to give tzedakah and like each year was another thing and another thing so that by the time I was in middle school I was already pretty much um I was doing a lot of things like my mitzvah pledge was to say my capital of Tehillim because I couldn't think of <laughs> like I was doing my da'ani and shema and all these different things um and by the time I went to high school um I went to Eretz Yisrael for the first time and after coming back started keeping more Shabbos and realizing that the Vogels aren't the only ones who can do Shabbos the way that they do, <laughs> but that, you know, there's a big Jewish world out there and Shabbos is for everyone. <laughs> so, um, so my family together, we kind of grew together and there are other things that also kind of um, helped be a catalyst in our growth. Uh, but the general approach has always been like an open-mindedness to learning and growing. Wow. That's really beautiful. So you said that there were other catalysts. So I was wondering, um, how did you initially feel like a wake up call and realize that you wanted to change and like this life wasn't the one you wanted to lead, that you wanted more? So because I, my parents were so open and receptive, I didn't actually feel like there was one changing moment per se that like totally now from now on, I'm going to be keeping Shabbos forever. It wasn't like that. But there definitely were life occurrences that happened that made me question deeper. And although it's still led to a process of, of connecting to Hashem and connecting to Torah and mitzvahs, um, um, I feel like it was always a gradual growth. So there were two things that happened to me um, when I was in fourth grade that really changed my life. One of which was that we moved into a brand new house, which was like a mansion gorgeous like literally when I was in kindergarten my parents took us to this field <laughs> and they're like one day we're gonna live here it was like a two and a half acre just field of grass oh, wow. <laughs> and in my five-year-old head I'm like wait like what? Dream. yeah dream. like I couldn't understand it I was like what blade of grass is my bedroom like I don't <laughs> how are we gonna <laughs> live here in a field you know so um so over the years we watched as they dug it out and they built up the framework and the structure and everything. And I got to choose like the color of my carpet and the paint and my own bathroom. And my, each of my brothers had the same. And it was just like this incredible dream house that my parents had dreamed of for decades and finally had the opportunity to build. So that happened when I was uh, in fourth grade on, in February, February 7th, I remember moving in and May 1st, a few months later, my mother gave birth to a baby. Now, I had two brothers before then. I had an older brother and a younger brother that I was the middle, like by two years on either end. And all of my friends, you know, we were from the, you know, secular homes, I guess, you know, two, three kids. And that was our, that was what I was used to. So having a baby was like a novelty when I was in fourth grade, you know, like I have a baby to play with a toy all the time. And he was just the cutest like light in all of our lives. It gave me this like new sense of purpose and identity that I had a brother to take care of and, you know, and watch after. So um, as the years went on, I remember leading up to my bat mitzvah, um, it, I had my bat mitzvah when I was in eighth grade. And I remember going to sleep shortly after and just thanking God after I said the Shema and saying, thank you so much for making my life perfect. Because at that time in middle school, 
I had changed a lot. I was getting, you know, more fit. I had, I was getting better at my dance classes. I was getting straight A's in school. I was popular with the, you know, with my friends in school. I had this baby brother who was now three years old, but still the love of our lives (laughs) and this home. And I just felt like God really just made my life perfect. And I wanted to thank him for that. Um, And a few months after that, we had like an extended weekend for some reason um, from school, like Friday was off. So I don't know how I convinced my parents, but I asked them if I could invite my whole grade of like 72 kids over to my house for like a party. Yeah. And somehow they agreed to that. And um, I didn't want to leave anyone out, you know, like I was didn't want to be mean. And I tried to be nice to everyone. So most of the kids actually came to my to my house and in the basement of this like gorgeous home that I lived in, we had um, a movie theater room, we had a game room, we had a family room, this was all just on the bottom floor. So we were hanging out all on this bottom floor. And the star of the show was none other than my little baby brother, Max, who was I mean, like, a live dog. <laughs> exactly. And with his curly hair and his huge smile and my friends were like obsessed. So um, at one point in the night, my friends were playing with him and one of my friends picks him up, spins him around really fast and puts him back down. And so my brother's now like, ooh, you know, dizzy a little and picks him up again, spins him around again, puts him back down. And now my brother's like, especially dizzy and everyone's laughing and he's so cute. So does it a third time puts him down. And this time my brother like was not regaining his balance. It was a little weird. He was like off center. He was going off to his left and he wanted me to just pick him up. And you could tell like he wasn't really focused. It was a little weird. So I'm like, are you okay? And he's like busy, busy. That's how you said dizzy. So I'm like, okay, let me just like give him a break from all the, you know, <laughs> people and craziness and whatever. And I brought him upstairs to my mom and uh, I told her what happened. I was like, okay, see you later. I'm going back down to hang out <laughs> with all my friends. So You're now, a now. What? You're a problem now. Yeah, exactly. Like just you know, he'll rest, he'll sleep it off. I'm sure he'll be fine, whatever. So uh, I went back downstairs and, you know, the party ended, everyone started getting picked up. I I went upstairs where everyone was. And I saw that my mom's best friend, Michelle was there and she didn't have any kids my age. So it's weird. Like, what is she doing here? So she said, well, your mom took your brother to the hospital just to make sure everything's okay. I'm sure it is, whatever. But, you know, we wanted to make sure there was supervision here for the party. (laughs) So I came to step in and like, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure she'll be back later on tonight. So with that, everyone left and I went to sleep and, you know, figured they'd get home sometime in the middle of the night. They're probably in the waiting room for a while. And anyways, I slept in the next morning till, I don't know, 9, 9.30. And when I woke up, I realized my mom and my brother were still not home. So I called her and she's like, yeah, I'm on, I'm on my way home now with dad and Max. And, you know, we'll, we'll tell you what's going on. So this is like a little bit of a red flag. because My father is a neurosurgeon and he was never, ever home in the middle of the day, especially on a Friday morning at 10 in the morning was like not normal. Especially. Yeah. So it was a little scary. And they came home and Michelle was there again. And she took Max to the other room to play. And my parents called us into my dad's office and um, he was sitting in his big chair. I remember he like didn't turn to us. It felt like hours was probably just a few minutes. And when he did turn around, he had tears coming down his face. And he said, your brother, Max, has a brain tumor at the base of his head, right over his spine. 
and we don't know yet what his like what's going to be we don't know if it's cancerous or not it could just be it's a growth and we'll just take it out and he'll be fine it could be that it spread to his spine because the mri didn't show clearly what actually was there um like where it actually ended it was it was too hard to tell and uh, we wouldn't know that until his surgery this was friday his surgery was scheduled for monday the earliest that they could schedule a surgery so we were all like in shock and asking questions. And of course, my father being a neurosurgeon knew way too much about all the situation and what could be. And, um, and we had to go into Shabbos now, like as if nothing, like as if everything was normal for him, because this is his last Shabbos for who knew how long it would be that we'd ever be together as a family sitting around the Shabbos table with like no worries that we used to have a week ago. (laughs) And, um, I remember turning away from my brother like every five seconds as he's belting Shalom Aleichem on his chair next to me and in his like adorable three-year-old way without knowing anything is going on and um, just turning away so he's not seeing me crying, trying to collect myself uh, so that he can actually have this last Shabbos. Um, And I remember being in Shul Shabbos Day, Rabbi Vogel said that he had sent my brother's name all around the world. Now, this might be dating ourselves, but <laughs> it was before cell phones or yeah, it was before cell phones. So there was no such thing. It was even like email was just starting to be a thing. Like AOL messages was like not even up and running yet. Okay. So to get a message out around the world, it wasn't that you had to write a, a letter because they had fax machines, but you literally had to sit next to a fax machine and fax every single phone number and send the name like that. There, it, it, there was no global connection like now to say, oh, I sent it all around the world. Like, yeah, I posted it on my WhatsApp status, you know, like done. It's all around the world. But it was before that time where we, where we were so globally connected. And so knowing that Rabbi Vogel sat there for hours faxing my brother's name to every shliach around the world and knowing that the whole world was praying on behalf of my brother was so empowering. We felt so much strength from that. And on Sunday, Rabbi Vogel took my father to the aisle for the first time and they dove in there. Um, and then came Monday was a surgery. And again, we're sitting in the hospital and Aurea has her tehillim that she brought and we gave tzedakah and we're the whole day for hours while he was in surgery, just davening for his health. And we found out after that, um, two things. The good news was that it did not spread to his spine because if that had happened, it could be anywhere in his body and be very much more of a threat. So that was huge, amazing news. The not so good news was that it was cancerous. And he moved, went on to have to relearn how to walk and talk because of where the tumor was in his brain. They were able to get the whole tumor out, but he still needed radiation, chemotherapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, like there was a lot of, yeah. And he was in the hospital for months and it was a very, and then like, even after he was out of the hospital and still getting all of his therapies, it was a long road because it takes five years to be fully in remission. And even then, you know, so, um, it was a long process. He lost all of his hair. You know, he had a lot of, of learning to do. And I remember going to sleep and saying the Shema again and saying, Hashem, like, what happened? <laughs> right? Like, I thought my life was perfect here. You know, like we had a deal going on. Like I was thankful to you, you know? And all of a sudden, the truth is that none of that stuff changed. Like, 
I was still popular. I was still getting good grades. I was still getting good at dancing. I was still like feeling confident in my body and how I looked. But all of a sudden, none of that mattered anymore. Like, is that really what life is all about? That's what makes my life perfect. Like, that's all so external, so empty. And I started asking, like, why are we here? How could this happen to a little three-year-old boy who never did, doesn't have like a mean bone in his body, who never did anything wrong? And like, is he being punished? It didn't make sense. It it couldn't be that he's being punished. Like, for what? I was like, "Is, is God punishing my parents? Like, my dad who literally saves lives every single day (laughs) and my mother who's an incredible community activist for the Jewish community she's been the president of the JCC and the Jewish Federation and helped at synagogues and done so much good for the Jewish community here and it couldn't be that he's punishing her she's like she'll give her shirt off her back for someone you know so it can't be that they're being punished so if it's not a punishment then what is this and what what are we supposed to learn like how like how could this be happening? And why do bad things happen to good people? And I just had all these like deep questions all of a sudden, like, why am I here? Very deep for a fourth grader. <laughs> well, at this point I was in eighth grade. I was in middle school now. Oh, right. So, right. But still, even in eighth grade, like all my Very friends were still grade. like, you know, what, whatever. They're like, like totally on a different page and wavelength. They were with me just a month earlier when I was thanking God that I had a perfect body and a perfect, you know, grades and whatever. So I um I really started like shifting my priorities and like what actually is important in life. Why like what are we what am what is my purpose over here? And that's when I went to Eretzisrael for the first time a year later, and I realized about Shabbos being something that is a much bigger picture than just the vogels. I remember going and like hearing Shabbat Shalom on the radio and being like shocked and going to the hotel. (laughs) Yeah. And like in the restaurant, in the hotel, you know, I'm used to going to restaurants and hotels in America and like you go and like, it's a Shabbos table set up with a white tablecloth and like kidding. I was like, what is going on? (laughs) It was so crazy. And I was like, you know, I want, I want more of this. Like there was like a truth there that I was thirsting for and every time I'd go to Eretz Yisrael, which we started to go frequently after our, my first trip, every time I came home, I would do something else in honor of Shabbos. So by the time I was in 11th grade, I was already keeping Shabbos in full. I, uh, the only thing we weren't doing was walking to Shul. We would drive only to and from Shul. We wouldn't go shopping or do other stuff, but to and from Shul we would drive because that dream house that my parents built <laughs> that they poured... <laughs> their everything into was seven and a half miles away from Shoal. Yeah, it was like a two and a half hour walk. Um, So that was like the one exception I made to still be a part of the community. But I actually studied in Israel for for the first semester of 11th grade. My high school offered this like program in Israel. And there, it's so it was so easy to walk to a show, like every street corner has a show on it. So by the time I came home, I couldn't like go back to getting into a car, you know, like I'd already reached a point where I I wasn't able to do that anymore. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm going to be out of the house in a few years. Like I'll just stay home and dive it. And when there's something special going on, I'll, I'll make the schlep. And I did a few times. I walked two and a half miles, two and a half hours for the seven and a half miles for like a special occasion or a yantiv or something like that. Um, One of my parents would walk one way with me and then the other would walk the other way. (laughs) 
And um, we used to live like in back roads and no sidewalks. It was like really a crazy road to walk on, but we made it safely, thank God. And um, then that summer, my brother also came back from Israel. He was there for like his gap year after high school. And he was also now keeping Shabbos in full. And at one point in the summer, my father turned to little Max, who was now seven, eight years old, was doing really well. Um, and he said, come on, time to go to show, you know, get your shoes on. And my brother's like, no, I can't. He's like, what do you mean you can't? You can't find your shoes? Like, come on, I'll help you. So he's like, no, 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 dad, it's Shabbos. And we're not supposed That's to drive so on Shabbos. Yeah. So when my father heard that from him, <laughs> after everything he'd been through and all of that, like, craziness and he heard him saying we're not supposed to drive on Chavez he went back inside to my mother and he said we have to move and within two months they moved to a different house that was a mile away from Shul and they left this dream house that they poured all of that time and all of that money and all of that passion and they totally left it without ever looking back they didn't I was like why didn't you guys get a Shabbos house you know like live in this house <laughs> and they're like no like if we're making this move like the house became irrelevant it was the same thing for them it's like is that what we're here for to have a fancy house and a fancy car and a fancy trips and like that's not what our purpose is that's not what God put us here for and it was like it was not even a question for them and that house, because of its caliber, was right when the market crashed. So they actually didn't sell it for like five or six years after they moved out of it. Oh my goodness. And you can imagine how much money was drained and just the maintenance of it and putting it on the market and taking it off and on and off. I don't even know how much money they lost on it because they wouldn't tell me and I don't want to know. <laughs> but I know that it was a huge, huge um, strain. And with that being said, it was like, it was never like, oh, well, let's move back into that house. You know, it was always like, there's no question that we did, that we're in the right place and uh, that we're connecting to what we're really here for. We're connecting to Shabbos and to our neshama, to our purpose. And there's nothing that's more valuable than that. No home, no, no, no money can ever replace that. That's amazing. I'm hearing this and I'm suddenly hearing like all your sacrifices of you and your family. And I'm wondering where I am, what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, you were only in eighth grade or however old you were at the time of moving. At that point, I was going into my senior year. It was my summer before senior year. And you can imagine, it's not easy to move, you know? No. Um, but I was so excited. I was so excited because it was like, which is crazy. Because like, it's obviously, it's bittersweet. You know, you love your home and you put so much in, you live there and you make memories. And it was your childhood. And That's yeah. Drop. Yeah. But at the same time, there was like, this excitement of being able to be connected. There was such like a, a, a satisfaction, a, a deep satisfaction, like a, a inner simcha, I guess is the best way to say it, of knowing that you are aligned with your soul's purpose. And when we live a life of purpose, that's what really brings happiness. So all those other things, like you can walk away and still feel empty at the end of the day. But when we're really here, aligned with Hashem and aligned with you say, you know, you had such mysterious nefesh, but I don't even, like, for us, it wasn't even like that. Like, it didn't feel like a sacrifice. It felt like a privilege. That's what it's like. Yeah. You make me aspire to something better. Um, one, at least. <laughs> but, um, 
So you had said that your family was going through this journey with you, but how were, what were the reactions of your friends and like on when you started your, like going even further into Yiddishkeit, you know, did they find you crazy while you decided to walk seven and a half miles or <laughs> they really admire it like I am or it's a good question. you know, you start to realize who your true friends are when you start becoming your true self and seeing who supports you and who doesn't. And that was such a lesson for me through those years. I have a best friend to this day that we lead very different lifestyles. Um, she's totally secular, lived on a kibbutz in Eretz Yisrael for many years, um, you know, has one child and like, and yet every time we see each other, it's like we didn't miss a beat because there's a soul connection there. There's a love of that, like for, we're childhood friends. And that's something that can last when you have respect for one another that goes deeper than your differences. Um, and then of course I had friends who like, didn't know what to do. Like <laughs> they just didn't know where to, they were, they were uncomfortable because they, they just thought that I might be so different from what I'm doing that like they were scared to even approach it. Um, and everywhere in between, most people I think had a respect for it. Um, I remember before going to Eretz Yisrael, I went to seminary after high school and I, I was still very confused because the high school I went to was called pluralistic and there was, you know, reform, reconstructionist, modern orthodox, conservative, like all being taught, taught as being true Judaism from different teachers and different angles and different perspectives. Very what, what I loved about it was the fact that you have so many different types of Jewish people all in one place. Like that was really special. And it's one of the things that really drew me to Chabad as well <laughs> is that acceptance for one another, despite our differences. But what was so confusing for me is like, what is the truth of Torah that we've believed for thousands of years, not just the last 100, 200, 300 years where people started making up that these people came and wrote it and there was different literary styles that show you which person wrote it with which divine inspiration and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but at the same time, like to tell myself, like you actually believe that the Torah was given at Har Sinai by Hashem, like you're going to be like that, you know? And I was like, it was so made fun of in my school. I'm like, it was such a leap of faith. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, like God came down. Like, it was like so weird for me. And because I had nothing, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't know what halacha is. I didn't understand how halacha could come down and talk to me as a Jewish woman in the 21st century and tell me about sneas and tell me about how to eat and tell me about all these things. But on the other hand, I was starting to dress more modestly. I was trying to, starting to keep kosher. I was keeping Shabbos. Like I had these two, like where, what's the truth and how do I find it? And at the same time I was doing it, you know? So it was like, kind of, like I had I such really a- like the idea of Nasa Vinishma. You, yeah. you were doing it even before you understood. I knew there was an MS in it. I just didn't, I didn't get it. So I wanted to go to seminary to get it. Like, what do we believe, you know? And I didn't want to be brainwashed though. So I tried finding the most like left-wing liberal, <laughs> like modern Orthodox. So there's still like that philosophy. Um, so I found a seminary where Gemara was like the main share of the Sem. <laughs> and I also, we had Chumash and other things too. But what I learned over there was, was the Emma of Tara, that like all the different classes and how things would overlap. And you would see how teachers from totally different you know, backgrounds were saying the same thing. And there was like a oneness there that really opened up my mind to 
actually being able to have a moon and, and understand like what the process is of receiving the tire and all the generations of bringing it down. Um, so I forgot your question now. Why did I start telling you this? So how was this? <laughs> oh, right. So I told my friends before I left, I'm like, guys, I'm never going to be crazy. Like, trust me, I'm going to be normal. Like I'll keep Shabbos and kosher, but all the other stuff's like a little, you know, like for sure, Shomer Nagia was like totally not happening. Like <laughs> that's like, like Chabad is so extreme. I would never be Chabad. Like modern Orthodox, like I could, you know, because that's, I didn't know anything. I'd never about be Chabad. one of those extremists. I'm never going to be crazy, you know? So I remember giving one of my friends, a guy friend, a hug. And he's like, I think this is the last time I'm going to hug you. I'm like, you're crazy. Like, I'm not going to be crazy. <laughs> and then I got home a year later and he's like, can I give you a hug? I'm like, nope. <laughs> he's like, see, I told you. <laughs> you predicted so, the future. Yeah. So there were certain like transitions that like were, it was like coming home, Sherman Nagia, and not touching like our family friend, my dad's best friend that has been like a second father to me my whole life or, um, you know, the people that I grew up with just like, so most people I would say embraced it, but there was some struggling like relationships that were more of a challenge to kind of navigate. Um, but the advice that I got, which was so, so helpful was don't become everyone's Rebbitson, you know, like. <laughs> You don't need to go teaching everyone else. Sometimes when you're like so excited about something, you just want to talk about it and convince everyone like this is the right thing to do and everyone has to do it, you know? Yeah, and um Especially and, as a team. Yeah, as a team too. Like you want to prove yourself, you want to be heard, you want to show that like you're doing the right thing, and like everyone else should also jump on the bandwagon. Right. Um and the advice was, you know, don't do that. <laughs> like you do you, you learn and you live and you be passionate about what you're doing for yourself. And when people see how that brings you joy and how, how you feel so fulfilled living that way, they're going to come and ask you. But until they ask you, don't give them any advice. And when they ask you, make sure that they're actually asking and not just also trying to be heard, <laughs> right? So, um, so I did that with my family. I was very respectful of everyone where they're holding, everyone's in their own journey and respecting each person's journey um, and not coming in as like the new boss in town telling everyone what to do. So I think that made a big difference. Right. So like the idea of if someone, if you're, let's say, so excited about this, you're going to get them a gift that's somehow, you know, a, Juda a Judaica or whatever. So mm -hmm. rather than doing that, like still sticking with what they like or what they're associate with exactly yeah. like they're they, if they love sports you're gonna go buy them a sitter they're gonna be like i lost we lost our <laughs> connection you know <laughs> I'm sorry um uh, not now right exactly exactly so did you find that when you switch like you became shomer nagia did a lot of people take that in a harsh way because i know that some people have their customs you have to hug you have to shake a hand you know did it did people take it pretty hard you know, the people, the people that that respected me respected the fact that I was Shomer Nagia. And it was also, and the people who wanted to understand it, they tried to understand it and they would ask questions. Um, right. And those that it was more of a challenge for, you know, they weren't necessarily interested in over, <laughs> overseeing that chat. Like, it was just like, you're weird and whatever. But also <laughs> a lot of those relationships were more superficial. I think it was hardest for me with the people who were closest in my life. Um, like my close, you know, family friend that just couldn't wrap his mind around it. But I would also explain it to them that our touch is so, so powerful. 
there's nothing in the world that can compare to touch. Right. And we want to be sensitive to our touch. And the more that we sensitize ourselves to it, the more valuable it becomes like anything, right? Anything that has value, you're not just going to pass it around to anyone. You're not just going to like take your, your diamond ring and let everyone in the world just come and touch it and smudge it and whatever. Like only certain people are going to be entrusted with that. And, um, and that our, it, it was like, it's out of the sanctity and purity of our bodies that we do that. And I remember one time my husband, actually a, a woman came to our show, that a non-Jewish woman, she came to drop something off. I don't know. And she went to shake my husband's hand. And he said there, you know, it's nothing personal, but the only woman that I touch is my own wife. I'm not going to, you know, I reserve that for between us. And it's not a matter of disrespect to you. It's a matter of respecting, you know, the sense of touch that we have, which is so powerful. And this woman, like her jaw dropped. She's like, my daughter's in the car. I'm going to go get her. And you have to tell that to her too. <laughs> and she was, like, so excited about it. Um, and I think that when it's explained in a way of beauty and when it's explained that it it's really like, out a of beautiful us, way, like, yeah, then people can appreciate it. Right. It's funny. Like I go to the school my whole life and everything you're saying, like, you're saying it was such beauty and like passion and it's really beautiful to hear. It really just amazes me. It's like really, my jaw is dropping. <laughs> there's so much beauty and there's so much understanding. And that's I said, I think so much of, of a lack of observance is really just a lack of understanding the beauty and appreciation of what of what we have. It's like the more we understand the why and the and the sensitivity and how empowering it is that we have and what we have, the more that we value it, you know? Um, so touch is one of those things that it's not like a restrictive thing. It's the most incredibly empowering, safe, beautiful things that enhances your relationship forever. Like you will never, you will never regret that relationship and the beauty that you have between you and your spouse when you reserve that for one another. Right. So I guess that could also be looked at the same way as singing for Kalisha, a woman singing such a deep, you know, place, such a yeah. beautiful thing. Absolutely. So My, really cool. someone, someone said to me, she's like, why do we look at it that we, that men can't listen to us? Why don't we look at it that we're so lucky we get to listen to everything, <laughs> you know, like, we really like, do. We like we are the ones who get to listen to everything. Men should be revolting. Like they only get to listen to half the music in the world. And <laughs> there's so much beauty out there that they can't access. We're so lucky. Yeah. Very. So I know that your husband also had to find his own path to Yiddishkeit. Um, did you both have your own separate journeys or did you meet after the fact or together? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and how were you both? participants like in each other's lives so it's a great question and and I guess you could say it's the answer is both that um <laughs> we I actually knew of my husband when I was in seventh grade he was in ninth grade and he would come over with my brother and another and his cousin and their names at the time it was Matt and Nate and my brother would always call them the Russians because they had Russian parents of their first generation. So I never knew which was which, like which one is Nate and which one is Matt. I I don't know, you know. And my mother even asked me, she's like, which one likes the salad and which one? Likes that one? <laughs> I was gonna say I doubted that you met your husband, you know, in eighth grade. So I thought that you would have at least you know some journey before. 
Um, so, but I never like paid attention to him. Like they were into, I was like the goody two shoes, straight A student, school, like government head, like very, you know, and my brother and his friends were like into not those things. They were into drugs oh. and rap and smoking and like all this. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, just a bit different for a straight A student. <laughs> and what's funny is they they did well in school. Like my husband has also got straight A's miraculously, but he was always high, you know, and it was just not my scene. There's so a different level. <laughs> yeah, we like didn't. I didn't even talk to him because he was always here with my brother's friends. I didn't hang out with them. So I actually didn't even really pay any attention to him. Um, when I was in 11th grade, I went to visit my brother over Pesach break. Remember I told you he was in after he was in his gap year program. So right. we went for Pesach to go visit him. And it just so happened my husband had a really hard year, his first year of college at Brandeis. Um, and he also went to visit my brother during his spring break, which at Brandeis happened to overlap with Pesach that year. So it was the first time that I met him without like the whole crew alongside. <laughs> and it was the first time There's I actually- There's one Russian, it's hard to get it mixed up. Yeah, exactly. There was only one, <laughs> one of them. And um, he was by our Pesach Seder and he was like, he was hanging out with my family the whole time, you know, cause he wanted to hang out with my brother and my family was hanging out with my brother. Um, and I actually spoke to him and like, there was some like connection. I don't know, like we really like hit it off in terms of just, there wasn't an awkwardness there. Um, and we, we started talking actually after that, I went to visit colleges and I went to Brandeis to check it out, even though it was not on my list of colleges <laughs> to check out until I knew he was over there. <laughs> oh, just a sign incentive. <laughs> I'm going to assume he was off of the drugs at this point. Or... No, actually he wasn't, but he never smoked in front of me. That was like a huge sign for me of like his respect wow. that he even because he knew how against smoking I was. That was like, I will never, ever, ever date a smoker. Ew. And he respects your idea of respect and who you should, you know, be around yeah. based off of respect. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that he like never did that in front of me, knowing my perspective on it was like really, really big. Um, but at a certain point, so we're just talking on the phone, like he's in Boston, I live in Delaware, you know, and he's like, you know, your brother's coming home soon. We should probably tell him that we're like talking on the phone <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So he calls my brother and he's like, so, you know, what's up? My brother's like, why are you calling me? Like guys don't talk to this, like schmooze, you know, <laughs> like, everything's good. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, so, you know, your sister, you know, and he's like, yeah, he's like, well, we've been talking. <laughs> like, dude, that's my sister. And he hung up on her. <laughs> so now my husband, now he had to call me. His blessing. Yeah, he had to call me. He's like, so I don't know if this is going to continue because your brother hung up on me. And I'm like, no, 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 call him back. I'm going to end up being with someone at some point, you know, and sh wouldn't he rather me be talking to his best friend that he trusts, that he loves, than like, have me find a stranger that he has to like, you know, make sure he's that absolutely. he's a guy. And so he's like, okay, so he calls him back and he tells him that. Doesn't and he want his best friend as a brother-in-law? Yeah, totally, right? <laughs> that would be a girl's dream. So his, uh, so he calls him back and my brother says, on one condition, when the three of us are sitting in the car together and you're driving, I get shotgun. And <laughs> I was like, Jason, you sold me so short, you know, like <laughs> you could have made it. Exactly. So <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. Like I'll send the back seat, big deal. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, Does he and, do it? 
So he gave us his bracha, but you know, it was still like, we were just talking. We, I, I went into my senior year, he went back to college. And at that point it was like, what are we, what are we doing? Like, what's the point? I actually never had a boyfriend even in that world. Cause for me, there was no point in investing emotions and time into a person that I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with. And none of the guys in my class that I feel were like worth my time <laughs> and that emotions yeah. and, and anything else that I might get into because of that. So, um, so I was never like really interested in my own class and the guys in my world, but there was something different about him. So what, but even so when he went to college and I'm still like, he's going to parties every night, I'm still my goody two shoes studying for my test every night, going to my dance classes. And it just became a little monotonous. We're like, this is ridiculous. Like maybe in the future, we'll see what happens, you know? Um, and I was also more observant than him at the time. Like I was keeping Shabbos and I remember saying to him, like, you know, like, in the future, I want to keep Shabbos with whoever I'm going to be with. He's like, yeah, I could like maybe see that happening for myself. And like, there were like little seeds planted, you know? Um, and somehow my brother convinced him to take a gap year to go to yeshiva. He told him like, you know, everything about the world, but you don't know who you are. And it really spoke to my husband. And uh, that following year, so it was the same year as my gap program, as my gap year, um, he also took off his his third year of college and he went to yeshiva he went to my note girls my note was not open yet at the time um and you know in the beginning of the year we like spoke to each other and like should we you know start talking again and seeing each other and I was like you know I really want to not do that unless it's going to be with someone who's knows more than me in Judaism who's really serious who is not smoking like I'm not making exceptions at this point like if I'm already dating someone it's going to be to get married and we're like, you know, like, we'll stay friends. We'll see each other throughout the year. He was my brother's roommate. I had no other family in Eretz Israel. So like, if I had an off Shabbos or something, I would see them anyways. So we kind of went our own way in that sense of like both growing parallel to each other, but not necessarily together. You know, like I was in my school asking my questions and learning in my school. He was at his school. Um, and we kind of grew parallel as the year went on. But he still was smoking. <laughs> and um, and until he got bronchitis <laughs> around mm-hmm. prime time, he stopped smoking because of the bronchitis. And I went, I was like begging him, like, don't smoke anymore. <laughs> and he's For like, me, respect yeah. me. I was like, don't smoke. So he actually decided he's not going to smoke anymore. And all of a sudden I was like, so like my like heart opened up. <laughs> finally this is my sign yeah like this is what I was waiting for so we we spoke to each other and I was like you know I think I'm ready to like let's see if you know we're a match but I have one problem and what was my problem is that he was starting to go to my note by then and becoming Chabad and I was not going to be crazy right (laughs) (laughs) that was actually my next question And I was like very much modern Orthodox, very religious modern Orthodox. And it, like Datilumi in, in Israel, like you had, like they were very, you know, religious and observant with Shomer Nagia and covering their hair and Tznias and everything else from the modern Orthodox I was used to like back in America. But still it was, uh, you know, that that was like normal. And it was so- borderline extreme, not extreme yet. <laughs> not, yeah, that was just mitzvahs, you know, but that wasn't like... <laughs> And I was very inspired by my teachers who were all like literally like Torah scholars. Like they spent so much time learning Gemara and Halacha. And like, it was crazy how brilliant they were. But I still was having this inner battle as being a Jewish woman because I felt like the role that they were showing me 
was that in order to be a Jewish woman, you have to be somebody who can prove yourself the same way that men do. Like you have to prove your intellect. You have to prove your ability to lead, you know, a group and be in a public sphere. And you had to like find all the loopholes to show that you could do everything that a man can do, you know? And it still was like not sitting. I didn't feel at peace inside with being a Jewish woman. Like I still felt like I have to prove and like fight a battle to, to make a difference and to be a powerful, you know, woman, whatever. And um, I remember my husband. Very different to the Chabad, Chabad idea you know, being a Yisera and an Alicia, we're always told that an extra amount of understanding is given to the woman. They're given so much higher of a, of a standing in Yiddishkeit. Yeah, it's crazy. I never, so I'd never heard that. And when my husband asked me, like, what do you know about Chabad? I'm like, I know that Chabad doesn't eat matzo balls on Pesach. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was like what I knew. I'm like, because to me, Rabbi Vogel and Oria were not Chabad. Like, they were just my rabbi and Rebbetzin, and they didn't have matzo balls on Pesach. Like, I didn't know what Chabad was. I had no clue, you know? And um, they were like my parents. It, it, you know, it, like, it, it wasn't a thing. I didn't understand anything. So he's like, well, have you ever learned the philosophy of Chabad called Hasidus? And I'm like, no. So he gave me a book called through the eyes of a woman because he knew that that was something that was like important to me as I was developing what's the woman's role and it was by Nahama Greisman who's an incredible educator and it was it was like a sicha on the parsha every week through the lens of a woman and I started reading it and being like first of all it resonated there was something familiar and I realized like all the times I sat in Rabbi Vogel's uh (laughs) on Shabbos and even my teacher in school actually was I had one teacher who was Chabad that like was saying these things without saying it was like this sounds so familiar and so um and and there was something so like comforting and powerful about it, about about the Chassidus. And I started to like really want more. And that summer, by then I already knew like that my husband is the one that I'm going to marry. There was no question in my mind. <laughs> um, so I went to visit his family and to meet them for the first time that summer. And I remember the first time, it was the first time I'd ever been to a different Chabad. Like I'd never had the opportunity to go to another Chabad house. And I remember um, walking into his rabbi and Rebbitzin's home and just like being in awe, like seeing the Rebbitzin, Rosie Weinstein, who's incredible, and just being so like blown away by the peace that she had in being a woman. Like I, I was like so mesmerized by her. Uh, it was the first time I went to Chabad outside of my own rabbi and Rebbitzin from when I grew up. So like it was a totally different experience. And um, I remember seeing Rosie and just being so enamored by the fact that she was like so outgoing and she was running programs and like you could see she was very strong and so confident in herself and in like the beauty of being a Jewish woman and not in an apologetic way and not in a way that she had to be masculine and be super, super intellectual and like give these incredible different I was like, she was, it was like, Neshama. I don't know how to explain it. It was like what you said, like embodying the Malchus and you felt it. You felt that like royalty in her home. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. You know, like this is, this is the Jewish woman that I've, that I've been like seeking. Like, I felt like I like, and I learned a lot from her. It's crazy to think about it, but I like didn't understand or appreciate the value of the three mitzvahs and how much that shows us about being a Jewish woman and all these different things like started really transforming my perspective and my inner stability and my inner 
value as a woman, like totally transformed with Hasidus. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just fell in love with Chabad, with Hasidus. And then the more you learn Hasidus, the more you realize, like, you know, you know, you don't know when you're missing something. You don't know you're thirsty, but when you start drinking, you like can't stop. It becomes your, your lifeline, you know? And it's almost like, I didn't even realize I was being fed Hasidus my whole life, like in small ways without knowing it. But once I like really got a taste of it, it became something that I couldn't live without anymore. And then, um, then I started realizing that Hasidus is not just like a beautiful concept and here to make you feel good, but it's actually like, you can't live. (laughs) I can't live without the perspective that Hasidus has brought me. So right. I, I started learning how to apply Hasidus into like my relationships, into a situation that's happening instead of becoming like a mess and drowning in the floodwaters of the world. There's actually real tangible tools to use Hasidus as a way of looking at myself and growing and using everything as an opportunity and empowering me to be connected and see Hashem, even in like my the fact that I'm like annoyed at my <laughs> at my friend or that my kid is being crazy and I feel like a failure as a mother as a what like as a shluch I like to th- all these different things like you you instead of being stuck and in this mode of like self doubt self negativity and worthlessness and failure and all the negative things that can come up all the time you know right. it's like well serve Hashem in happiness but like how do we get there you know when <laughs> I don't feel happy. And when we literally start to shift the way that we see the world through the lens of Hasidus, it's like, it's unbelievable. And people get so stuck on the word Hasidic, you know, like, oh, I'm not Hasidish. Like, I don't go to Fabringens, but it's like, it's not, (laughs) if you want to be somebody who's in touch with yourself, who knows your emotions, who wants to know how to navigate and have like, have clarity and have direction and understanding when everything feels like it's falling apart and there's no boundaries and there's, there's, there's like, it's like somebody drops you the oxygen line and all of a sudden I could breathe and I can get through this. I'm not anxious. I'm not down and depressed and negative. It like, whatever, I'm speaking very theoretically, but it's very practical. Right. So <laughs> you started getting it basically, instead of getting it from the back door, you got it from the front door right now. And you realized how dry just living without Hasidus was and it finally enriched it. And yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So now I'm the most curious question of all um, for me. When did you, uh, like at what point did you start, like what was the conception of the idea to open up based on a Delaware? Was it always a dream of yours or like, how did you make that idea come to be and come to life? It's a great question. (laughs) I can tell you that this has been such a crazy journey. Definitely not a dream that I had my whole life. You know, (laughs) if you would have told me even like five years ago that one day you're going to be the principal of a high school, I would have like (laughs) laughed in your face, you know, like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Um, And yeah, I was you know, but it was something that kind of developed as I've developed in my life myself. Um, when I first moved on Shlichas, I was like scared to even work with teens. I'm, I was young. I was almost a teen myself. I was like 22, 23 years old. <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to work with teens, you know? And um, as time went on, we started doing JLI teens and C teen. And I 
fell in love with like the vibrations I'm having with these public school kids and their questions. They were so good. And they were my questions from when I was in high school. So it's like, like about like your and like, yeah. To the past. yeah. And I like all the things that like gave me such meaning and purpose and beauty and all these things that I came to discover I was like getting to share now with that with the next generation and they're in such an incredible stage of being able to really I feel like teens are so amazing because they don't have all these preconceived notions of and like their mind made up of what they're not jaded in the sense of like okay I've been there done that I'm an adult and I know how things work you know but at the same time, you, they're so deep and they're not kids. Like they can handle real conversations and real depth and real questions and actually like decide for themselves what they want to believe. And so I, I love like doing that with the sea teeners. And I ran, I led two trips for sea teen. I did the Poland Israel trip the first year that it opened. And I led a cross country trip, the sea teen extreme and just getting to be with like my first trip was 42 girls. And the next one I think was like, of 16 or 17 girls and just like their thirst and reconnection is like so incredible um and that was amazing but simultaneously also on Schlechus, we run a camp <laughs> and um we have counselors come in to be in you know working for the camp and one of my you know, things that I love doing is with the counselors getting to bring with them you know at least once a week we try to have a fair bringing and at the bringing I was starting to realize like they're asking the same questions as my C teeners. Like they also, it was different though, because they knew the answers in their minds. Like, you know, they, they could pass the test. It's all an intellectual thing, but it was not, really feel it. Yeah. There was no connection. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, don't you learn this in school? <laughs> and they're like, you can't oh. teach how to feel. Yeah. Like it was really like, there was a disconnect. And I started realizing that like, these questions are just, these are everyone's questions. These are, this is like the, the value, the beauty of Yiddishkeit is something everyone has to discover for themselves. And um, having the opportunity to then come back and fabring with the counselor's friends and making small fabringans, which then turned into school fabringans and Shabbatons and other things. Um, it's just been such an incredible experience, like getting to see um, our own, like how Lubavitch girls are growing and thinking and um, I realized that there's like, there's, you know, I don't know, there's a need to also connect with our own, with our own girls. And I think that my whole like journey has been like making that shift. Like I'm a shlucha, you know, like I reach out to other <laughs> non-religious people to answer their questions. And it was a very big shift to say, wait a minute, but like, we also have these questions and who's addressing that and how are we addressing it? Um, and I love getting to Fabring in general and like discuss these types of things. So that was one thing is just like that love of of this age and and getting to explore together and find truth and find like self-awareness and self-worthiness and all these different things that beca I became very passionate about. And in addition to that, my own daughter, <laughs> I remember when she was three years old, I started bringing her to Cheder and it only goes till eighth grade. And I would watch as all the shluchas would send their ninth grade girls out of town. And I was like, wait a minute. She was only three years old. I'm like, wait, where's she going to go for high school? Like, I'm not sending her away, but I definitely want her to only have a Chabad Chinuch. <laughs> so where's she going to go? And I would ask every year, like, who's starting a high school? Where's the, <laughs> like, when are we adding a high school? And there were crickets, you know, nobody's <laughs> stepping up to the plate. And as the years went on, I'm like, wait a minute, like, 
maybe I'm the one who's supposed to be starting this high school. So um, I would say about five years ago, I actually like started to consider seriously the notion of starting a high school. What would that look like? What would be the value of the school? Why, why would I like, what would be the goals, et cetera? Um, meeting with different people here and there and um, COVID hit <laughs> and like, I, like everything went on a hold, you know? Um, but this year, my daughter's now in ninth grade. And so I had like a, uh, a time, like a, a set time that it needed to be opened by. And um, I think that that was really my catalyst for pushing to do it now. Um, and Baruch Hashem, it's like a crazy... Yeah, even a year ago, if you would have asked about, I, I didn't expect to be the principal. I didn't expect it to be in Delaware. <laughs> like so much has changed, but I think just opening up, like to to just channel what is what where is the Rebbe guiding me? Like what does the Rebbe want from me? And um, having it be with Hashem's Ratzin, you know, the more that I would like push my own doubts away and my own like concerns and calculations and these things, and just say like, where is my inner voice guiding me? Um, brought more and more like revelation and clarity and the right people at the right time and the right places. And there's been like so, so many miracles um, yeah. along the way to have. So this that's really like taking the idea of like, if not now, then when, and if not me, then who, and yeah. really emulating that. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also like not being stuck in like, but the calculations of it, like, it's so easy to get trapped and say like, first you need the money and first you need the best principle. And first you need the right, like this many students and first you need a building and for like, what are you going to do and how are you going to do it? <laughs> and I really didn't have any answers to any of those questions. Like literally Shavuos, I had two students. One of them was my own daughter. <laughs> wow. People are like, are you going to still open with two or three Daughters are like a supporter. I had, I had three students and um yeah and over the summer like it was literally like I went to the aisle and that week five girls registered like it, like crazy things oh, and I would go and see like the, the video saying like the rebel was saying directly like don't get stuck in the calculations you keep going and you'll see the brachas pour in and it was this one like little thing after the next and one conversation with one friend who shared a story and this one and the, like so many little things that kept me moving forward so, so in a place where there is no man, be the man, you know, or woman. <laughs> yeah. So we always learn that we're supposed to learn from all those that we encounter, even a teacher from a student. So is there any specific times that you can share with us that you felt that you learned from your students or someone that you taught? Oh, yeah. I remember as a kid, like hearing my teachers be like, I learned so much from you guys. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're teaching us the whole period. Like, what are you like? I'm not teaching you algebra. Like, what are you? you know? <laughs> I'm being so confused by that. And now being like from a different angle, it's not necessarily that we learn, you know, information from our students, it's not like a student asks such a good question. And now all of a sudden I learned something new about life and about whatever. Although sometimes the questions do lead you to go do that research. But I think that the learning that is, for me, has been the most powerful is learning how to navigate the questions that come up, the girls that I have in our school or the other people, like students that I work with in different capacities. Um, you know, going outside of what you think that you already know and realizing that you don't know. <laughs> right. 
realizing that there's so much work still that there's what I've learned is that it's not that I'm learning information from my students. It's that I'm learning about how I need to grow as a teacher to be able to reach my students or as a principal to be able to touch my students in the right way. Um, and how to, you know, it's so easy to come and say like, this is what you have to do, you know, <laughs> or to, um, or to share something in a certain way. And you realize like, wait a minute, like take a step back and who am I speaking to? What do they need to hear? What is their, what are they really asking? And you have to learn, you have to learn about yourself. You have to learn about the, like, what did the Rebbe teach in terms of how to approach Chinuch and how to approach kids and students and you know you you end up learning about your own your own midas and refining yourself because you have to so I think that's like more the learning is like to take it back to like how am I using this as an opportunity to learn and grow to be even more effective as an educator and more effective as a principal um, to hopefully reach the vision that we set out for oh wow it's, I'm starting to think now that I think this is all very relatable to all of us, even though we are students, a lot of us are going, like you said, to be different counselors in different uh, Ghanazis or different camps, maybe helping in friendship circle. And you really, when you're going to work with children and going to work with students, campers, anyone that you work with, you like, sometimes it may seem that a child is, you know, saying why, and it's just because they want to bug you or take up time and really you got to think about like the bigger picture that they really do want to know and I think that's really amazing yeah absolutely and it can also help us to learn our our boundaries you know like so much of life is learning where we begin and end and you know it's so easy to just like pour your a thousand percent into something but then we can get burnt out or we can get resentful or we could feel guilty or we could feel and so I think part of also learning is learning what are my boundaries with my friends, with my students, with my kids, with my, and what are they really asking me? And seeing, like you said, like seeing the child for the child and not for their behavior or not for what they're doing wrong and that they're so annoying and frustrating, but like, how can I, how can I reach this child? Right. That's really and, amazing. And sometimes, sometimes we can't, that's also okay. You know, especially as a counselor, like sometimes we need to ask for help. And I think that's also learning, <laughs> right? Like, knowing that we can ask for help or that we can make sure that the child gets the help that they need if we're not able to provide it for them. Right. I mean, we're all students of someone, even teachers. Mm-hmm. For so, sure. To conclude, I want to know what would you say that you're most proud of and what's the message that you'd like to leave to everyone? Wow, <laughs> that I'm most proud of. <laughs> um, something you're very proud of. Okay, I'm gonna try not to cry. <laughs> I'm most proud to be a shlucha of the Rebbe. That I have the privilege to be his shlucha. That he trusts me. Um, as a balastruva, and knowing that. The, that he knew about me being here in Delaware and he sent my shluchim to me so that I could live a life of the most, like now I think Hashem that my life is perfect. Not because I'm popular and <laughs> whatever my external reasonings were in my eighth grade head, 
but because I have the the biggest privilege in the world to live a life of connection, to live a life of purpose, of godliness, of seeing Geula in my life, from learning Hasidus, the gift of Hasidus that the Rebbe has given us, that all the Rebbe have given us, to literally see the Geula now, to see Hashem revealed in our lives. It's like, I don't know what I did to deserve such a, <laughs> to, to, to have this privilege. And um, I think that's what I feel the most proud of is that I have, I have that connection that is cautious and that the Rebbe trusts and believes in me. And that with that, I have, you know, the family that I'm, you know, we're trying to build together, my husband and myself and our shlichas. And now that shlichas extends to the high school, but it's all comes back to that, to that ikker of knowing that the Rebbe believes in me and that I have a mission here. And I hope that I give him nachas. Wow. <laughs> that we do. So what was the other the other question? Yeah. So what would be a message that you'd like to share with all of your listeners right now? Hmm. Yeah, I would say um, it's so easy. It's so easy to think that we don't matter. It's so easy just to feel like you know, one of a crowd and yeah, I'm doing things, but like anyone could do it, you know, that you're replaceable. And I think the most powerful message that you could know as a team is that you are a critical, essential um, person here in the world. And that there's something that you have that nobody else has. And even when you think that nobody sees you, don't think that that means you don't matter. Find a way for you to see yourself and know that the Rebbe sees you, know that the Abishter sees you, and that's in every detail of our lives. And until you feel that, keep looking. Don't give up. It's there. And the more you learn Hasidus, the more you're going to see just how incredible and valuable you are. Wow. That's really, really touching and a big, you know, burden not a burden, a very big responsibility that are ordered. Um, not, not, and not in a way of like scariness, like go fulfill your mission and be, you know, but like in a way of just know that you're so, so important and valuable, like know your worth. Don't let yourself like do the down talk. Like, oh, why did I say that? You're so stupid. Like, what were you thinking? How, she hates you. Now you must really like all these things, right? Like all that talk that we do it's not real. Like go to the, start complimenting yourself and start seeing yourself for who you really are. And the, that's going to be, become more of your reality. And again, the more that we learn, like the practical way of applying Hasidus and the perspective of Hasidus, you're not going to care anymore when that girl rolls her eyes at you. You're not going to care anymore when, when she thinks that it's ridiculous or whatever. You start to learn how to see your self-worth in a whole different way. And so just, it's more like, not necessarily to carry the, the responsibility and the burden of what you have to offer, because you're doing that just by being. You don't have to do anything to earn that. You just have to be you. And you have to know how amazing you are. That's amazing. And I feel so special right now. But Yay, you should. Because <laughs> really do. I hope everyone else does too. Yeah. So thank you so much, Mrs. Shane, for taking your time to speak to us tonight. I know personally that I've gained tremendously, and I'm sure everyone else has as well. 
Um, thank you everyone for joining this week's episode of Ready and Able. Tune in next week to learn more about how to make chasadas and Yiddishkeit more practical to you. Thanks again and have a great night. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> of course.